Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. In the last episode, we started talking about the horrific assault and murder of two little girls, Courtney and Christine. We talked about the bite marks and bad experts that convicted two men, Kennedy Brewer and LaVon Brooks, who prosecutors said committed these identical crimes individually and separately. When we ended the episode, we had just learned that DNA pointed to another man. That unidentified DNA profile first discovered in 2001 was matched to Justin Albert Johnson. Oh, well, there's a familiar name and exactly why we needed to test that DNA in the first place. Exactly. So he was one of the original suspects in Courtney's case, the prime suspect. Police really initially liked him for it. His ex lived next door. He'd been in Courtney's house earlier the same day. And I think there were some other things at play that just made him a, a pretty good looking suspect. And obviously for good reason. Uh, but remember, these are bite mark cases. When police initially developed a number of suspects, they got teeth impressions from them. And Dr. West compared the suspect teeth to Courtney's injuries. And in fact, Dr. West had already excluded Justin based upon his dental impression. Wes said Johnson could not have been the perpetrator. Yeah, I'm, I'm not liking this Dr. West so far. What <laughs> so, else you got? So after DNA confirmed Johnson had, at a minimum, based on this evidence, raped Christine because of the semen that was recovered, police went and brought him in for questioning. With little resistance, 15 years after Christine was taken, abused, and murdered, Justin admitted what he had done. He snuck into her house, took the little girl, sexually assaulted her, murdered her, and left her body in a nearby stream. Police asked whether he acted alone, and he said that he did. Police then asked him about biting the little girl. And Johnson adamantly denied ever biting her. Well, I mean, he's confessed to being a total bag of shit and doing all these awful things to her. But what about Courtney? Now, this is important. So the evidence collected from the crimes against Courtney was no longer usable by the 2000s. So the only way to connect Johnson to Courtney's case was if he confessed to it. And when investigators asked if he was responsible for a crime that was nearly identical against a victim who was nearly identical right down the road, do you know what he said? This better not piss me off. He admitted to doing the same things to Courtney, to acting alone, but not to biting her. He was adamant that he never bit either girl. So he confesses to all the horrible things, but he draws the line at biting. So what, what's the deal with these bite marks then? Is he just, is there some reason he doesn't want to admit to that or, or what? It's an excellent question, and I'm going to answer it. But first, I want to talk about the state's experts. Could just answer the damn question. I mean, I could, but I'm not going to. So remember, we have Dr. Hain and Dr. West, who served as the state's experts at trial in both of these cases. Dr. Hain performed both autopsies, and in both cases, he suspected there were bite marks on these little girls, so he called his pal, Dr. West, to come take a look. And West confirmed that these were indeed bite marks, and we know that he compared known samples from suspects to the marks on the victim's bodies. So starting with West, do you know how he would go about comparing the suspect teeth to the wounds on the victim? Well, I would assume he would take a a photograph of the, the wounds of the marks, the so-called bite marks. And then he would take uh, some kind of a transparency of the uh, dental pattern and lay that over top of the bite mark and, and see if things lined up. 
somebody has watched forensic files before. Uh, but no, unfortunately, that is not the method that he used. Instead, he would take the teeth that he made from the suspect's teeth, right? So he'd create a mold and then make a, you know, do the whole negative, whatever, all that stuff. And then he would create a set of chompers. And he would actually take those teeth that he made from the mold of the suspect's teeth. And he would put them on the victim's bodies and press them in and see how they fit. And if they worked with the wounds on the actual bodies. And if you're wondering oh, how I know. If you're wondering how I know that's how he did it, he videoed him doing that. And even in this case, there's a video of him doing that with one of the little girl's body. And in these videos, you can see him sort of push and roll and scrape and tug with these teeth. And I don't know how anybody, regardless of your professional background or your knowledge, can, can see that and not immediately think, oh my gosh, he's damaging the body further. He's going to make marks or leave abrasions or injuries or whatever on the actual victim's body. That's unbelievable. I can't even imagine. Like, that's the evidence. Anytime you're dealing with evidence like the victim's body or whatever, you take pictures, depending on what it is. Like, even when you're dealing with computers, you make a copy. You, you never mess with the original. And, and the victim's body is like the original, original, oh, unbelievable. Yeah, and if you think that's wild, this man is well known for a bologna sandwich case. Have you heard of the bologna sandwich case? I, I can't say that I have. So, in state of Mississippi, the Calvin Banks, a lady was murdered in August of 93. Now, there was little helpful evidence from the crime scene. At trial, the only physical evidence the state had against Banks was a partially eaten bologna sandwich recovered from the crime scene. A bologna sandwich. Yep. And remember, this is 93. So what kind of testing do they do on this bologna sandwich? Well, Dr. West does a little bite mark analysis. He testified at trial that Banks' teeth correlated with the bite marks in the remaining portion of the sandwich. But there's a kicker. After West did his analysis, he threw away the sandwich. Oh, Lord, that's bologna. And when the Supreme Court of Mississippi considered the case at the end of 1997, it held that the admission of evidence about the bologna sandwich rendered the trial fundamentally unfair, and it reversed Banks' conviction. In addressing West's reasoning for throwing away the sandwich, this part of the court's opinion is particularly interesting, and I think it's revealing about, kind of gives us some information about Dr. West, who we're going to continue to talk about. So the court said, quote, additionally, the state's excuse that the expert destroyed the sandwich because it was perishable and would be rendered useless upon freezing, according to his test on some other bologna, is unavailing. The state concedes that the sandwich was frozen before it was ever given to the expert in the first place. And this same expert, who stated that freezing the sandwich would have rendered it useless, found the previously frozen sandwich useful enough to conduct his tests. Holy crap, what is with this guy? Like, did he get his degree at Kmart or something? <laughs> Well, actually, he attended LSU in Louisiana School of Dentistry before studying forensic dentistry at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in Washington, D.C. And later, he attended the American Academy of Forensic Science. And he had served in the United States Air Force and used his dentistry expertise to help identify or confirm victims who died in plane crashes. So this was kind of his entrance into forensics as a dentist. And West has said that he has over 29 years of experience doing death investigation work, spent 15 years working at coroner's office and five years as a chief medical examiner. 
According to his own accounting, he has investigated more than 5,000 deaths, attended more than 5,800 autopsies, and analyzed more than 300 bite marks. And honestly, he was considered a guy who was kind of the, on, on the leading edge of his field. He was a sort of well-known figure in these circles. By the 1980s, he had testified in numerous criminal trials. Um, he was sort of like this go-to guy when it came to, you know, bite mark comparison or bite mark analysis, particularly in uh, these, uh, you know, forensic or criminal circles. But I, I want to, um, just as we're trying to kind of fill this out, who he is and explain for people, I want to pull up a picture and uh, maybe you could just like describe him for the folks listening at home. Uh, oh, thoughts? Greasy. <laughs> oh, that's, that's funny. Yeah, he kind of looks like a, a, a fried bologna sandwich. A double stuffed, extra meat on that rascal. I mean, he's glistening in this one picture. I'm just bothered by the fact that you have someone that's a medical examiner that he's a trained dentist, but he's a medical examiner doing all these autopsies and whatnot. Oh, and oh, yeah. yeah, if you saw this guy on the street, you would not be thinking doctor goes anywhere in his name. He reminded me and a little he, bit. I'd, I'd be thinking he, he never met a bologna sandwich he didn't like. He reminded me a little bit of the Bondurant brothers. Uh, yeah, he could have been a cousin. Right. Okay. So well, with that in mind, this guy was in, and I know what you're saying, but remember where we are, right? We're down in the South. We're in Mississippi. And this guy was incredibly charismatic with juries. He would put on this whole shtick and the jurors would just eat it up. Uh, his testimony and frankly, even his demeanor in most interviews and, and the stuff that I've watched where he's spoken. He is, could be described as supremely confident when this guy who's an expert, right? And he gets qualified as an expert in a trial. He has all this experience. He rattles off and he's got doctor in his name. He sits on the witness stand and says, uh, yeah, that guy bit this little three-year-old girl who was sexually assaulted and murdered. That's just kind of the end of it. You know, how does the defense come back from that? And he had a phrase he would use when testifying. And it's actually the title of a Netflix episode that's about these cases. He would say, indeed and without a doubt. So when he would be asked the penultimate question, Dr. West, based on your extensive training, knowledge, and experience, in your professional medical expert opinion, did Mr. Brooks bite little Courtney's body? Indeed and without a doubt. And the jury just ate it right out of the palm of his hand. Okay, but these bite marks, what's the deal? Haynes says there's bite marks and Wes comes in and does these comparisons. So where did things go wrong? Now, let me share Wes's conclusion in LaVon's case. He testified at trial that he compared Brooks' sample to the marks on the victim's body and found that two of Brooks' teeth matched the marks on the victim's body. He said Brooks made the marks with his two top front teeth. Further, he said that it could be no one but LaVon Brooks who bit this girl's arm like we talked about earlier. When you say he matched the two top front teeth, I, what? Yeah, that's right. Somehow, according to West, LaVon bit Courtney in a way that only his two top teeth damaged her skin. That's stupid. Yeah, and interestingly enough, Dr. Richard Suveron, who testified about teeth in Ted Bundy's case, it was also a, a very well-respected and, and kind of world-renowned expert, um, thought West's conclusion was stupid too. He disagreed with West's findings and noted that it's not possible for somebody to bite another person with only their two top front teeth. 
So what the hell were these bite marks if that bag of shit didn't bite the girls and this other bag of shit is saying these were made by two top front teeth? Experts retained by uh, the exoneration teams for LeVon Kennedy found that these bite marks were or bite marks in air quotes. People can't see me doing that. So these marks were made by wildlife, most likely crawfish or other similarly sized creatures living in and around the water where the girls' bodies were left. And you can imagine, right? If I mean, for our city friends, maybe you can't imagine, but there's all sorts of things that inhabit the water. You got turtles, you got fish, you got down in the south there, you've got these crawfish. And there's all kinds of stuff. The animals, the wildlife that was in, in and around that area had done what they do. And, and that's what had made these marks. Now, remember, West became involved in, in these two particular cases because Dr. Hain, who performed the autopsies, brought him in. I want to talk about Dr. Hain, but before we do, how many autopsies do you think would be the most that a doctor should perform in a single year? Well, I think that would depend on kind of their setup. If they don't have a lot of help, it probably wouldn't be very many. But if you assume they've got all the resources, they've got tons of technicians and people to do the cutting and and they're just kind of the eyes and, and brain behind it and they've got other people working as hands for them. I would think maybe the most you'd want to be at is like max one a day on average. I don't know. So about 20-ish working days in a month, 12 months in a year, two, 300, something like that, maybe. Well, that's a very well-educated guess, my friend. So I am going to read you a quote. The National Medical Examiners Association standards recommend that pathologists perform no more than 250 autopsies a year. If pathologists perform more than 325 a year, the office risks losing accreditation. So you're pretty spot on. And you want to take a guess how many autopsies Dr. Hain was performing in a year? I can't imagine. I mean, I wouldn't think it'd be very many in some, you know, little country place in Mississippi. But then again, I don't know. And my guess is just based on having witnessed autopsies and seeing what goes into them. And yeah, there's the, you know, the work right there at the cutting table, which is frankly a small part of it. And then all the other stuff that goes into it, the toxicology and the tissue samples and the, and the interviews and the medical records and all that kind of stuff. I mean, some, I guess, are going to go a lot faster than others and some are going to take a long time. But no, this, this nut, Dr. Hain, how many was he doing a year? I, I couldn't hazard a guess. 1,500 to 1,800 by his own admission. Holy cow. That's like, what, five a day, every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year? Come on. Yeah, so he was a medical examiner in Mississippi from sometime around the late 1980s through the late 2000s. And for most of his career, he pretty much only did autopsies for prosecutors. He actually never held an official state position. He was a doctor in private practice. And I think to just kind of unpack that for folks, um, you have to understand the way things worked in Mississippi. This was a part of this coroner system that they had. And basically, when there's a suspicious death, the county coroner, which is an elected position, the requirements are like you have to have a high school diploma. And I think you have to basically avow that you're not atheist. It's, it's kind of bizarre. So they would transport the body to a private medical examiner or doctor to do the autopsy. And then the, the coroner, this elected guy or gal, would pay the private doctor and the doctor determines the cause and manner of death. Now, 
you could probably pick up that the the weakness of this system is that it can allow for prosecutors to you know put pressure on doctors to give them the results they want, or it could be as simple as you know, prosecutor who's going to go with the doctor who makes his job the easiest based on findings or whatever. Now, according to the authors of a book titled The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, guess who it's about? This system favors somebody like Dr. Hain. Hain over the years developed a reputation as a guy who would tell prosecutors whatever they wanted to hear. Remember when I asked you about the numbers of autopsies just a second ago, Hain was doing 1,500 to 1,800 a year, according to his own admissions, which for the better part of 20 years works out to mean that he did about 75% of all the autopsies in the state of Mississippi. Unbelievable. What's even crazier about this Hain guy, who is a doctor, he's a legitimate doctor, uh, but he had day jobs. So the autopsy gig, that was a second gig for him. That wasn't necessarily like his main focus. And he would do all the autopsies from his morgue at night. And some people have reported that he and his assistants would just kind of be like smoking cigars, eating pork sandwiches, and, and just having a good old time while they were conducting these autopsies. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten a night. Oh, my gosh. So you got Hayne, the Emmy by night, who's doing a jillion autopsies a year. While he's eating his pork sandwiches and giving prosecutors really whatever they want to hear, and he's teamed up with West, this dentist, this greasy dentist who uses suspects' teeth to dig into the victims and identify the bologna sandwich eaters to testify at trials and put people in prison. Really? This is what we're doing? I got to laugh because it's just, it's really sad. Um, it pretty much, and if you think about the numbers, recognizing that Hain was responsible for three out of four or four out of five autopsies in the state of Mississippi while he was uh, in practice, then think about the numbers of people who have potentially been wrongfully convicted. How many people right? are sitting in prison or, or even on, on death row because of questionable at best testimony? So uh, tell me, I want to make sure I got this right. The pictures you showed me, the greasy guy, was that uh, West or Hain? That was West, and I'll go ahead while you're while you're thinking. I'll, I'll pull up a picture of Hain so that you you kind of have an image of what he looks like too. And that West guy, that greasy bologna sandwich looking guy, he was in the Air Force. Yeah, at or, some I guess, point trained. No, at he, some point in his know. life, he he was not. <laughs> he was just a, sing, a single bologna sandwich instead of a double stuff. You cracked me up with that. I found I like this picture. I don't I don't know what it's from, but it, it I think this is tells you everything you need to know. Here's the guy. Uh, uh, so, so by all accounts, people who kind of knew and interacted with him, they say he's genuinely like a very smart guy, like legit, probably genius, genius. The problem was like he knew he was a genius, genius. And so he kind of had this way about him. And there's also some things I've read that, you know, he in it, that kind of goes in line with some of these reports and some of these accounts that you know, he was really pro-prosecution that, that he would kind of drive a car that was like this souped up, you know, like a Charger or Challenger or whatever. And that he kind of, it, it was almost like he enjoyed being part of the, that group of people, right? Being part of the, the, th the thin blue line, as it were, um, which, you know, if you're, I don't know, if you're a crime scene tech or whatever, that, that's one thing. Or if you work for the police department, that's one thing. But you can imagine, we probably want the, the forensic experts who are investigating, you know, cause of death and other things like that to be impartial and to just offer their findings because those are their findings and not um, put their finger on the scale in any kind of way or 
or even just have a maybe a biased in a favorable way view of law enforcement, right? I got to think this guy, if he's done 1,500 autopsies a year, there's got to be a money motive involved in this too. Because he certainly wasn't doing those things for free. It sounded like he got him a little autopsy factory going on. Yeah, I'm sure it was lucrative. I don't, I don't know the details on that. I do know in the things I've read, the way that that system worked, like I said earlier, you know, the coroners would, would pay the medical examiners for the autopsies. And so, I mean, there again, that's a, another potential incentive that could have existed. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not saying that it certainly did here, but. Um, I'm telling you, it's got, I mean, the guy wasn't doing it for free. So if he can churn out a bunch of these with his medical license, he's got a, a pretty decent side hustle going on at worst. Um, and at best he has an interest in everybody's guilty. The detectives will tell me who's guilty and then I'll, I'll tell them something out of here that, that proves it. And I do want to go back to the, um, you had said something about how they, sometimes they'd have a bunch of them line and obviously they did. If he's averaging 15, 1800 a year, that's five a day or whatever. So they just have bodies lined up and him and his assistants that go boom, boom, boom. It's not uncommon to have eight bodies lined up and for eight autopsies to be going on simultaneously. But you have multiple techs in there performing the, the steps, and you also have multiple pathologists in there. You may have four, five, six, seven pathologists across all those different bodies. But here you've got one. You've got one ME. There's no way he's doing five to eight autopsies a day and doing anything useful. Yeah, my understanding was there were some, you know, assistants or whatever. There were other people, and then, you know, uh, the dentist, Dr. West, he probably... The, the 5,000 or so autopsies he he was participated in were probably, probably part of Haynes. I don't know that, but that wouldn't shock sure. me. Um, but yeah, so, it, it, and just the description. And I'll, I'll say too, um, there's some video footage out there you can find on YouTube and stuff of Haynes autopsies and Wes doing his thing. And this notion that there was, it was just kind of not what you would expect in terms of um, ambiance. You can see some of that in these recorded videos where there's like weird... I would describe it as almost like circus music kind of music playing and just the, the atmosphere is very not what you would hope for in that kind of a setting, for sure. Not scientific, not clinical. Well, I mean, he, he's just, wow. So you got this this guy that's just churning him out, whose cohort is this charismatic dentist dude that is greasy and clueless. And these are the guys that are, that are given the testimony and given the police, the answers of who done it. And you're right for over how many years and how many people got railroaded by them. But all right. So what happened with LaVon and Kennedy? So on February 15th, 2008, the charges against Kennedy were dropped and he was exonerated. On the same day, Brooks was released from prison, LaVon Brooks, and LaVon was subsequently exonerated the following month. And then in 2009, Kennedy and LaVon filed a civil lawsuit against West and Hain for $18 million. Now, unfortunately for them, their lawsuit was dismissed in 2014 after a judge ruled that West and Hain were immune from damages. And the U.S. Court I, of Appeals... Mm. <laughs> Hold on, let me get this out, and then you can... You can, you can <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit upheld the dismissal in 2017. That's some bullshit immune like really 
I get, I understand there's people in public office and whatever, and you can't be like sued for doing your job or doing your best or whatever. I, I get all that. And it, 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 you know, I'm not necessarily opposed to it, but these guys were doing wrong. I mean, they should be in prison themselves and they can't be that they're immune. Really? Yeah. I didn't dig into that case, but as a, just kind of a 30,000 foot view, uh, essentially to, to break that immunity or get past it. The bar is pretty high, right? So LaVon and Kennedy, they would have had to show that West and Hain were essentially like almost maliciously, you know, intentionally trying to to do this to them. That it wasn't just that they were, they, so if they were crappy doctors or, or a crappy doctor and a crappy dentist, that's not enough. As long as you could say that somebody else in their field could have made that same mistake or, or you know, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that they were just oopsies when they did this, then uh, it, it's basically impossible to, to breach that immunity. Yeah, they also should have gone after the whoever the coroners are that are habitually hiring Hain. I mean, that's a problem. Figure out why that was happening. Was it, you know, were the coroners all related to Hain? Were they all cousins or something? Jeez. Yeah, right. a lot yeah. of good questions. Um, now, Kennedy and LaVon did each receive $500,000 in compensation for being imprisoned on the basis of wrongful convictions. The compensation is provided by statute and it allows an individual to receive $50,000 a year per year of wrongful imprisonment, but it's capped at $500,000. So, I, you know, Ugh. they got something. But again, as we've said before, like with Harlem Part 3 and some of those other cases, uh, I don't know anybody who would really trade any amount of money for 10, 15 years in prison. Yeah, absolutely not. That's nothing. Now, in 2011, West testified during a deposition in the case of uh, Lee Stubbs and Tammy Vance that he no longer believed his own testimony regarding bite mark evidence and that the existing science did not support bite mark identification. He said, when I testified in this case, I believed in the uniqueness of human bite marks. I no longer believe in that. And if I was asked to testify in this case again, I would say I don't believe it's a system that's reliable enough to be used in court. Vance and Stubbs were exonerated in 2013. Any thoughts on that? I think we need to go back and look at every single case he's ever used that that junk science in and say, all right, if we pulled out this this evidence, what else do we have? Because these are examples of cases where that was pretty much all they used and they ignored other usable good science. So I guess the Innocence Project is been busy in Mississippi, I would assume. Yeah, according to the Innocence Project's website, um, for cases that they've been a part of, 26 people have been wrongfully convicted based on bite mark evidence. So that those aren't just cases they've identified. Those are cases where they've actually had convictions overturned and bite mark evidence was improperly used. And of course, LaVon Kennedy are two of those 26 cases. And they also kind of have a, a nice write-up on an explanation on on why it shouldn't be used. And they talk about how uh, bite mark analysis has never been scientifically validated, that, that there's some real issues with, with doing it at all. And in fact, they talk about a, uh, a report from the National Academy of Sciences, which again, you know, that's, this is, we're up in like gold standard territory with these people when it comes to science stuff. And so not long after that study came out, a few years later, uh, there was another study where these certified dentists who were um, part of the American Board of Forensic Odontology. So these would be uh, dentists who are, you know, essentially qu qualified 
or should be, you know, preeminent, able to do this kind of um, examination or analysis. Uh, they were part of this study that asked these dentists to use a decision tree to analyze sets of bite marks, some from their own case files. And among other basic questions, they were asked to determine whether they were looking at an actual bite mark, something suggestive of a bite mark, or something that was not a bite mark. So those were like the three questions. Or whether they had insufficient information to make a determination. Now, this is just alarming, right? In all but a few cases, participants couldn't even agree on whether or not they were looking at a bite mark. So when these different experts were all given the same case files and they were looking at the exact same things, they were coming to completely different conclusions. Right. They were going to tell us who made the bite mark, but we, they can't even say it was a bite mark. They don't know the difference. Right. Yeah. So if they can't even agree on what a bite mark is, then like, what are we doing? And, you know, this article goes on to explain that there's a couple problems. One, our teeth, there's no, we don't have any studies to suggest that, that teeth are actually unique. So that's a problem. But then the, the, the another problem is just the fact that uh, when you're talking about bite marks in a person, skin is a terrible medium uh, to preserve that kind of evidence. It's just, there's so many factors. It's elastic and it varies on all these different things, like how, how much fat a person has in their body, how old or young they are. Um, Whether they they're moving or sitting still when they're bitten. Yeah, exactly. So there's all these variables that just really impact it in a way that makes it just not good. So that, that's that about bite mark stuff. It's, it's just not great. Well, back to our story, though, now that we've talked about bite marks. So LaVon died in January 2018 after a five-year battle with, with colon cancer. And, and the book I mentioned earlier, The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, is dedicated to him. And I'd encourage you, if this story is interesting, you want to know more about it, check that book out. Uh, the guys who wrote it are solid and said it's a good book. LaVon was 58 years old when he died. By all accounts, he was an incredible person. Nearly everybody who knew or interacted with him describes him as a, a wonderful man who easily connected with people. And he loved to hunt. In fact, that investigator, uh, Eichelberger, that I mentioned earlier, um, after LaVon got out, uh, my understanding is Eichelberger gave him a hunting dog. And that was sort of like this, you know, I, I don't know that it was uh, explicitly a peace treaty kind of thing, but it was sort of this, obviously just a kind gesture. And LaVon, like so many of these people and, and Kennedy too, instead of coming out and having a kind of a chip on their shoulder and being angry and whatever, they were just appreciative for a chance. Uh, they were appreciative for for what they had and for being able to get out of prison while they were still alive. And it's remarkable, frankly, um, after enduring that kind of thing to have any sort of positive outlook uh, and being able to to move on and to kind of set back up in the place where all this happened. So uh, th that was Levant, right? He loved to hunt and he loved the people in his life. You know, he had family, friends, uh, I, just everybody that was in his circle. You can see it when they talk about him. Uh, he made an impact on everybody he met. And Kennedy, he strikes me like this big teddy bear kind of guy, just genuine, kind, thoughtful, and determined. Remember, Kennedy's the one who, you know, he just didn't give up. And even just years and years after all this went down, he, he writes to the Innocence Project. He gets them to take his case. And he knew he was innocent. He wasn't going give to up, give up. And if it hadn't been for Kennedy writing to the Innocence Project, LaVon would have still been in prison, too. That's really something. And 
who knows how many other cases are out there that how many other, like I said, I hope Innocence Project is working on it. How many other guys are in there because of this, this garbage testimony and nothing else and ignoring real evidence. And these two crimes that these guys were in prison for, it's, it's amazing that they survived in prison to even get a second shot at justice. Yeah. And the tragedies in this case are everywhere and exponential. The crimes committed against Courtney and Christine are absolutely horrific. Unimaginable. There's this man who's breaking into houses and kidnapping his little girls, these babies. LaVon is convicted on the testimony of Hain West and Courtney's, you know, six or so year old sister. And, and then Kennedy meets the same fate. All of it is awful. But one thing that just for me, at least, is the thing that really just grinds my gears is by putting LaVon in prison for Courtney's murder. The state not only failed Courtney and LaVon, but it also failed to protect Christine. Amen. If Justin Johnson had been caught, if bite mark comparison hadn't been relied upon and investigators were a bit more thorough and critical, then Christine probably wouldn't have been murdered. Kennedy wouldn't have spent the prime of his life in prison, and those injustices underscore the high cost of wrongful convictions and junk science. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.